Dan, how are you? Good weekend? Yes, good. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's been amusing me recently is trying to estimate the probability that I get away on a summer holiday this year at some point. Ah. I think it, so I reckon the probability bottomed out at below 50% sort of bit prior to last weekend. Right. But actually, I reckon it may be just nudging back up, up above 50 again after some of those announcements. What do you reckon? It depends a bit, doesn't it, on your definition of summer when you talk about a summer holiday. No, funnily enough, actually, I was almost about to book a UK-based trip mid-July and actually chickened out over the weekend because I just thought that's a bit too soon. So, yeah, I've not gone quite as mathematical as you, though. I haven't gone probabilities. I'm just finger in air at this point. Yeah, still a bit on the cusp, aren't we? We'll see where we are next week. Yeah. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on the podcast, we are talking income investing, and we're delighted to be joined by Hish Ravindra, partner in the investment team at LCP. Hish, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mary. Good to be on the podcast. First time for me. Excellent. Exciting stuff. Hish, could you tell the listeners a bit about your role at LCP? Sure. So I'm an investment partner at LCP, as Dan said, and I lead advice to a range of clients. While my core base of clients has been the traditional pension schemes within the LCP, I'm also leading a lot of our work into broader investment areas. That covers some of the sovereign wealth funds, central banks, and private wealth funds we're talking to. And Hish, before we get into all the serious stuff, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? Well, you won't find it on my CV, but I I think everyone knows me knows this about me, and that's I love cricket. (laughs) (laughs) and it might be because of the numbers but it's my one passion in life what are the chances of us getting in cricket this summer they're talking about the west indies series aren't they i think that's going ahead but unfortunately spectators won't be allowed yeah and i I do have tickets to the england pakistan series so i'm i'm hopeful that i may be able to go for that when's that august i think is what they expect fingers crossed certainly test cricket it's a good day out especially at Lords, where you can take your own bottle in. So in today's conversation, we're talking about a piece that you guys both jointly wrote, focused on income, as Dan said earlier. Great to see that we had some press coverage over the weekend as well. So guys, what's it all about? What is the income problem? I mean, I suppose in some ways, when you sort of ask yourself, what is the point of all this investing? Why do people and institutions and companies and everyone invest? I mean, a lot of the time, it is to generate some kind of income in the future, whether that's a pension when you retire, when you're not working or, or whatever it is, income is sort of an output of it. Tish was saying, as we talk more and more to the likes of private wealth managers and those sorts of firms, you know, a big a big requirement that a lot of their clients have or a big aim a lot of their clients have from the investments is to generate income. And historically, a lot of individual investors in the UK have done that by investing in UK equities, UK shares and getting dividends from those shares. That's worked pretty well, and that had worked pretty well, for certainly for a good couple of decades. But we, what we've noticed, and a lot of people have noticed this, that it's been less and less effective since about 2013, 2014. And then particularly recently, you've had this massive issue of dividends being cut by a lot of big UK companies. You know, Shell was the big example. But that's really just a sort of a continuation of a theme that's been going for a while, where if you look at things now, as we showed in the paper, you've basically got 10 companies 
that account for more than half the dividends that are being paid out of UK equities. And I think, you know, you've got to start to say, well, is that sustainable? Is that sort of super attractive as an investment proposition? So that's where we sort of started from in terms of trying to address that as a, as a problem. And I guess maybe before we get into some of the detail of the problem and the solutions, it's probably worth just opening that conversation, taking a step back. Why is it income that's so focused on for investors? Why do they want income? Dan said, I think it's just, it's always been a thing within the industry where investors have always wanted income. Personally, I think it's potentially two strong reasons for that. One is it's just an operational reason. I mean, it's just easier to have monies, I think, automatically paid out rather than having to log in, try and sell funds every month, every week, so that you capture some of those gains and release enough assets to cover your needs. I think the other point is potentially psychological. I think investors are reluctant to sell something. And it's that psychological piece because usually when you're investing, and I'm thinking certainly from my personal experience, investing my own savings, you're trying to meet a certain hurdle or hit a certain target. So grow your pot to a certain target, but at the same time, generate enough enough from it to maintain your outgoing expenses. Because you've got that ultimate target in your head, you do feel quite reluctant. I think pushing sell on investment, it just feels like there's a bit of a block there psychologically from an individual perspective. I totally agree. And it's always a bit easy and tempting to sort of sniff and laugh slightly at those kind of behavior on psychological points, isn't it? But we've had a couple episodes where we've talked about behavioral influences on investing, haven't we? We talked with Zoe, we talked with Nikki about it before. I think it's just really important. We have to recognize that investors are all humans and subject to these behavioral kind of influences. And so I, I think there's a limited, in my view, limited point in trying to push against it. And if it's a good device and a good vehicle for people, then that's great. Fantastic. And so I guess back to the main conversation, back to your paper. So you said, what was it, 10 companies account for more than half of the income. That's staggering, isn't it? When we talk about diversification of investments, and then you've got so much of your income coming from such a few a small number of companies. There's a lot of oil, tobacco, mining there, which are not necessarily most companies that a lot of people want to be supporting today. So yeah, absolutely. Definitely a question mark there over the, the diversity of that strategy. Yeah. So what can people do if they still want income for the reasons that Hish just outlined? Not so comfortable with this concentration and the types of companies producing this level of income. What are the other options? So I guess in the past, you could maybe invest in bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds, and you'd have got a decent income, certainly in the 1990s, by adopting that sort of strategy. But again, that's changed fundamentally over the last 10, 15 years. The introduction of QE in 2008, bond yields have just gone only one way. And if you look at where we are today with UK government bond yields negative on some occasions, you're just not getting that income yield by investing in bonds. So we took a step back, and I think what we were trying to get into this portfolio was some different ideas, which may not be widely used, I think it's fair to say, within the private world space and by retail investors. But we came up with sort of three ideas, which we think gives them better diversification and access to a higher income today. Anyway. So go on, Hish, what were those three areas then? Go on, tell us. So uh, the three areas were investing in infrastructure. And in particular, listed infrastructure, because we think that's more appropriate for a retail investor. Then we talked about investing in high yield debt and emerging market debt. And we see that as sort of one category. And then the final piece was investing in what we call private debt. On the infrastructure side, we talked about that generally, didn't we? And, and you can obviously separate that into private and, and listed companies. 
And there it's a fairly straightforward investment in, in companies which provide infrastructure, things like anything from water companies, power companies, ports, toll roads, airports. And the idea with those kind of investments simply being that there's quite a large upfront investment in most of those cases. Easy to understand why, which is then recouped over a relatively long period of time through a relatively stable income stream. Think of, a, say, a toll road or something, got traffic going through it or a pipeline that's just getting used continuously. And that sort of setup enables those companies to pay for reasonably regular dividends out to their shareholders. And so to say, yeah, some of those companies will be listed. We, we gave a couple of examples in the paper. Others of those companies will be, will be sort of privately owned, which you know, some of our larger pension scheme clients own through private markets funds. A bit harder to do that with individual investors, but a lot of the same things exist in sort of a listed form. So that was one thing we thought we'd put on the table. I don't think that's a, a radically new idea. I think it's sort of been around for a while. Infrastructure has clearly been a big theme as along with real assets. You know, clearly this wider theme of income has been going for a while, especially in a world with very low rates. The long-term streams are more valuable. Yeah. Sticking with infrastructure briefly. So when we talk about listed infrastructure, that is equities. So the difference between the analysis you've done on the UK market, where we've got the income being dominated by 10 companies, and now we're saying actually listed infrastructure looks really attractive. Is that partly because we're going away from the UK focus and we're going to global infrastructure companies where we get access to income from different sources? I think it is partly that. I think a shift away from UK equities to global equities has been a big part of what a lot of bigger clients have been doing really for, for as long as 15 years. I mean, as long as I've been in the industry, really, that's been a big theme in terms of what UK pension funds and other big investors have been doing. So yeah, I think a part of that shift is a shift to a more global focused, naturally means it's more diversified by company and by country and by currency and those sort of things. You know, in the current environment with the coronavirus pandemic still ongoing, the sorts of industries that you mentioned, some of them sound like they'd be fairly well protected from the impact of the pandemic. So the utility type companies presumably are fairly resilient in this environment. That's right. I mean, utilities have performed quite well over this period. The other area we've seen that's held up quite well within infrastructure is telecoms. Of course, yeah. I mean, the one area I think it's fair to say that's been most affected, on on the other hand, has been transport, where airports and sort of toll roads, we've seen that being affected, although it seems to be picking up again. But from my perspective, if you compare the sort of big dividend-paying companies in the UK, as Dan said earlier, we're talking mainly oil and gas manufacturers or financial companies, it feels like listed infrastructure gives you different sort of exposure, especially more defensive exposure, certainly in my view. We have seen that in terms of how it's performed over March this year. The second of the three ideas then, Hish, you said that was, what, high yields, what we're talking US, European and emerging markets there. Yeah. So high yield debt is very interesting, I think, because while it's fair to say most investors are, I think, comfortable investing in corporate debt, so that this is debt issued by relatively large companies, well-known companies, the high-yield debt potentially had negative connotations in the past. Junk bonds was a term widely used for the same area not too long ago, potentially still used, actually. I've always thought that's hilarious, by the way. I mean, we all know that names are important, right, in terms of how we see things. And the difference in branding between junk bonds and high-yield debt just just couldn't be starker. I mean, it's just hilarious the way one is pointing you to a completely different conclusion than the other, isn't it? And truth probably somewhere in between. That's right. I mean, look, we can't shy away from the fact that from a credit perspective, it's probably, well, it is riskier than investing in investment grade rated corporate debt, but you are being compensated for it with the higher yields. And 
if you manage to invest in this asset class in the right way, again, a diversified exposure, one of the nice things, again, is you do go more global. The U.S. high yield market is a very big player and large part of the overall sort of universe, if you want to call it. So you can get a lot of diversification that way. You are getting compensated for it. And especially if you look at yields today, we think there are quite attractive opportunities in that area as long as it's managed and invested in the right way. And that sort of links in with emerging market debt because, again, I think we've had crises throughout history where certain emerging markets, Argentina springs to mind, where you've had events and that's scared investors. But again, I think it's an underserved area and diversified exposure to emerging market debt can give you the high returns, high income that you need. And when you say high returns and high income, I guess what we're comparing here is investors that potentially historically look to UK equities. So they're looking for equity-like returns and a nice level of income. Is that comparable when we look at high yield debt? Is it a sort of equivalent type return that we'd expect? Certainly, I think so. I mean, in my view, I think high yield is potentially a slightly lower return compared to equities, but EM debt is probably up there with equities. Together, as I said, I think you can get quite a decent return, but you get it with a very different risk profile compared to just investing in global equities or UK equities for that matter. I think that's one point that's really underappreciated. I think people can often get very carried away with the amount of credit risk in high yield bonds, but often don't compare it to the right things, often compare it to less risky bonds, when actually if currently you're in equities to try and get your income, you should be comparing it to being in equities. And there's a lot of risk to being in equities that people just sort of accept. The reality is high yield bonds, you get defaults all the time. I think there was something like 30 defaults in April in US high yield. And that's just expected. But as Tish is saying, you're getting enough yield in hand to compensate for that. If you're getting paid 8, 9, 10% yield that you you do quite frequently, you can stomach quite a lot of defaults when your investment's just paying you that much every year. Yeah. And I guess Hish referred a couple of times to kind of having a diversified exposure to these sorts of areas. Does that mean that you'd suggest active management rather than passive for this in this area? Absolutely. Uh, in my view, this area needs to be actively managed. And therefore, you need to have a high confidence in the skills of the manager that you appoint and invest in to be able to screen and pick the right bonds and avoid defaults as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's back to that classic point that credit indices are weighted heavily to all the most indebted companies, aren't they? So it's kind of quite different to equity indices. That There is a clear argument for why it could and should be a bit easier to outperform. And then just credit investing is all about avoiding the bad cases rather than trying to pick the superstars, as it were. So it's just, it just turns the whole mindset around a little bit from equity investing, doesn't it? Which I guess is also difficult if people are used to the mindset of a kind of equity investing. Yeah, I'm quite keen to sort of do a bit of a compare and contrast, but can we just very briefly cover the third idea, which was, I think, private debt? Yeah, it's similar in some ways to high yield, but I think we're now moving further up the risk spectrum. And also in terms of the exposure you have to the companies that issue this sort of debt, these are much smaller companies that struggle to raise debt in the public markets and therefore arranging debt in the private markets. What we're saying here is if you can find the right fund managers that have experience in raising capital debt in those markets, you have the opportunity here to access what we think is really good returns in terms of 8 to 10% per annum, high yields. And the one downside, if you want to call that a downside, is 
you get the high return at the expense of sort of liquidity. So you need to be willing to be prepared to sort of tie up your money for a period of five to seven years to do this. From my perspective, you're talking about investors who certainly don't have any serious liquidity needs over the short term or invest in this area in such a way that it's a small proportion of the remaining investments which can support their liquidity needs. This has been a huge theme among our big institutional clients, hasn't it, for sort of a decade. And whatever you said, it ties in with what Steve Hodder was saying to us last week on the podcast around private debt. I mean, it's really been a huge allocation sort of avenue for a lot of pension funds, a lot of bigger investors who I guess can access these closed-end partnership type vehicles, which was the kind of initial, the main kind of vehicle that managers tend to use in order to give them the permanent capital, sorry, that they need to be able to pursue those opportunities. But I guess the real difficulty there is whether that can be successfully brought into the realm of the individual investor, into a vehicle that really works there. The answer to that is that there are a few examples where it has been. There are a couple of funds available on platforms that get enough liquidity, I think, to either deal monthly or something like that. And the other avenue is to look at investment trusts where that's a more permanent capital type vehicle. But then, of course, there you have the the difficulty with the premium discount kind of moving around a little bit. So that's one maybe for the future, I think. It's not done so much now, but there's been some really interesting developments there with the Investment Association last year putting out a kind of futurist kind of piece talking about the need for more vehicles that permit kind of private capital to be invested in by individual investors just because of how important the private markets are now on both the debt and the equity side. And I think we're seeing that happen not certainly on the defined contribution side. We're seeing some large DC schemes in the UK which have this requirement of being able to provide daily liquidity. Yeah. Starting to find ways of incorporating that asset class within the investment strategy. And I suppose that's huge for the future, isn't it? Because as we look at defined benefit pensions on their sort of de-risking journey, possibly investing less in some of this higher return stuff. You need someone else to fill the gap in the capital, which I guess comes from DC schemes, like you said, Hish, or private investors. Absolutely. I mean, there's a bigger market dynamic also at play here, which is part of the reason why you're able to generate high returns. And that's the banks, which back in 2008 would have provided the capital to these businesses actually withdrawing from the market to an extent. And so you're looking to the private wealth, the private investors to help fund this if certainly the large institutional clients like our DB schemes withdraw from that area with time. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, with the liquid investments, the question you've always got to ask, I think quite rightly, is are you being paid enough for that extra illiquidity? Because it's all very well saying there should be good opportunities, but it has to really make sense, doesn't it? Otherwise, you know, there isn't any need to go into those illiquid assets. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you want to be fairly confident that if you tie up for four years, you're not going to turn around in two years and find there's loads of other opportunities that are going to give you a much better return that's equally as well, equal risk level. So we've heard the three ideas. I guess there were a few questions I had in terms of if I'm listening in and I've got lots of money I'm looking to invest, how do I decide which of the three ideas works for me? And I guess there are clearly some differences in characteristics, but maybe it's worth just drawing out some of the key features. We were trying to not get too specific in the piece and we were broadly just came out as saying diversified portfolio of all of them would be a pretty good, probably be a pretty good place to start. For a lot of people, it'll depend what's available on the platform they use. A lot of the popular platforms will have model portfolios for income. I had a little look at some of those and what's interesting is there's just a real range there, the actual assets they use. Some of them 
have a lot of UK equities, some not very much at all. Some of them have a lot more high yield. So it's kind of interesting out there. There is a range of approaches that are currently being taken. And then it sort of depends on which funds are available on the specific platforms that you use. And that gets really at one of the recommendations we were trying to push a little bit in the paper is that I think when you look at the funds that are available to individual investors, the sector classifications from the Investment Association are quite powerful in categorizing them which kind of makes them available to people and to advisors to categorize them usefully. But when it comes to the categorizations for income, I thought maybe not as helpful as they could be. There's a lot of different categories. There aren't obvious ones that really kind of kind of fit some of these higher income kind of level areas. And there's one or two of those categories that seem to attract a lot of assets, but a lot of the funds in there seem to be a little bit more at the conservative end. So it feels like those categorizations need a bit of a rethink to kind of really address what, what individuals need. And that maybe one of the more helpful things. I agree with you, Dan. I think the key thing here is these new ideas, I think the way we see it forming part of the overall portfolio is not as a direct replacement where you know you replace all of your existing UK assets, but UK equity income, I think, still has a part to play within your overall portfolio, but maybe it doesn't need to be such a large part. There are other asset classes out there which can generate a good level of income and provide diversification. And we think forming a holistic portfolio, which has a little bit of all of this, can give you a better outcome. Yeah, it's a word we use quite a lot is right sizing, isn't it? I suppose that's probably one way to think about it. And it's not necessarily about getting too negative on UK equities, but it's just looking at it and saying, well, hang on, is that the right size in the portfolio compared with other options that are out there? So that's almost a recommendation for the Investment Association. And if you are an investor looking at this at the moment, is it sort of think a bit outside the box and look at more categories than you think you might want to in terms of knowing what's available? Yeah, I mean, lots of people work with an advisor, obviously, and that's a conversation for them to have with their advisor. But yeah, I mean, if people have got time to spend looking through all those categorizations and it's not necessarily the most fun thing, I spent a bit of time trying to pick through them and look at the different funds. And even for an investment professional, it's not that easy to pick through and figure out what's doing what the whole time, because there's just quite a big range of different funds in some of these sectors. So I think that would be a big favor to investors if that could be sort of cleared up a little bit. Right. Okay. And then I guess just in terms of the three options, I know we've already talked about the private debt idea being less liquid. So you need to make sure that you're happy to tie your money up. Are there any other sort of constraints from that perspective? I guess thinking about the relative returns between the options, the costs associated, I guess there's a a really big range of costs available within each option as well as between them. I think in terms of the three options we've discussed, the costs probably increase in that order. So infrastructures, listed infrastructure is probably the cheapest of the three because you can access it as a passive option or an active option if you wanted to avoid certain sectors. But that's really investing in on the equity side. And then you move up another level, I think, when you go to high yield and emerging market debt because there's a lot of fundamental credit research there and avoiding defaults, as we said, is key. And the private debt's probably the most expensive area, given how resource intensive I think it is. For me, private debt, another way I like to view it certainly is a lot of investors, and if I use myself, I have a buy-to-let property. And if I'm willing to tie up money buying property, a single property within the UK, that generates in today's market a yield of no more than 4 or 5% if I'm lucky, I think I'm better served to some extent investing effectively what would be in an illiquid holding in a more diversified illiquid holding that gives me exposure to underlying investments and generates a yield and a return of about 8 to 10% a year. 
sizing your illiquid and liquid allocations is really important. What we wouldn't want is a sort of rush of redemptions being placed in these type of funds. But again, your advisor should be able to help you with that. It does speak to a good point, doesn't it? Because we've obviously seen the issue with property funds being suspended recently, similar sort of questions there. And back to this issue that most individual investors don't want to access their money for a long time, but the vast majority of funds that they invest in are daily daily dealt, so they can come and go at any time. And obviously there's a lot to be said for that. It's very reassuring that you can get your money back whenever you want to. But I don't know whether it's really debated often enough, the trade-off that that sort of puts onto people and, and the fact that really most people out there probably are prepared to tie up the money for a little bit longer ought to be prepared to do that if they could get better, so if they get better returns. Yeah. One thing that we haven't talked very much about with these options, but sort of came up at the start when you were talking, Dan, is, I guess, environmental social governance or responsible investment, however you want to sort of describe it. Because you mentioned that if you're investing in UK equities and you're focused on income, you might end up quite heavily invested in oil, tobacco and arms, I think you said. For people that are particularly sort of concerned about ESG, environmental social governance or sort of responsible investing, are there differences in these three options that help them better exploit those views? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point because lots of investors in UK equities, I think, are struggling a bit at the moment when they consider some of the environmental implications of, of UK equities, given the prevalence of, of oil stocks in the UK. Investors are asking that question more and more across all different sorts of asset classes. And obviously, the more global you look at, the more choice you have, and the more I think you are able to build in some of those sort of views. So, so taking the three asset classes one by one, maybe infrastructure managers have been probably at the forefront, I would have said, in incorporating environmental and social issues in, into what they're doing. I mean, a lot of infrastructure managers will be big investors in renewable energy, for example. It's been a big area. But equally, they, they will have investments in things like airports, toll roads, which are not necessarily such environmental sort of stars, but they're generally very focused on the environmental performance of these assets, as well as the impacts on the communities that they're in. And, and you certainly would want a manager who is thinking about that and, and taking those long-term kind of views. They've certainly been taking into, that into account for a while. The interesting one, I would say, is the more credit-focused managers, the high-yield-focused managers. I don't know about you, Hish, but I've seen a real change probably in the last two, three years in terms of how they've approached sort of the ESG question. Steve talked a little bit about last week as well, didn't he? But I think there's been much more of big difference in equity and, and debt, obviously, is that you don't get to vote when you own debt as opposed to equity. So managers have thought about it in the past just less because they aren't thinking about the question of how to vote. But credit managers are about risk, aren't they? They're about looking at all the risks in this security. They want to get to the bottom of every little risk that could make it default. So I think when they've started thinking about it, they've realized that they do build it into the process to a large extent anyway, and have started to make sure it's built in and more importantly, tell a really good story around, around sort of what they're doing on it. And that is important because there's lots of energy oil companies who finance themselves a lot in the debt markets and are very reliant on those markets to continue to finance themselves. So managers in that space do have a lot of influence, even though they're not voting. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, Dan. Certainly from my experience as a fixed income researcher, I have seen that where more and more of these fixed income managers are trying to structure their portfolios, taking into account those ESG concerns. Certainly where you have broad market bond portfolios, you're less likely now to see exposure to oil and gas sectors, certainly where they have bonds with longer maturities within that portfolio. It'll be towards the short end where there's more certainty about the cash flows. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So Hish, we've sort of been focusing on UK-based investors, but you obviously mentioned at the start that you're working with some of our sort of overseas and non-pensions investors. I guess, are they investing in a similar way to what we've just been discussing? Are there any differences or surprising similarities? I think they're more common than you would think, actually. Where there are differences, it's due to the sort of constraints that each market sort of imposes on the investor and regulations may impose on the investor. But where I think there's a lot of similarity is all my clients are searching for yield. In this environment where you can't earn a positive return with your cash savings account, and it's so hard to just generate yield, everyone, no matter where they are in terms of their risk appetite and their return objectives, everyone's trying to find different ways of generating that yield and while trying to keep risk low. And I think that comes back to that central message and possibly the message we're delivering in this paper here is you need to access the full toolkit. And there are a range of options out there, we think, which can help you get a better yield than just investing in high-income UK equities, while also helping you manage risk along that journey. That's really what we're doing with all our clients. And Dan, I guess, from your perspective, any one-line summary of the conclusions from the paper? Yeah, but it's like Hish said, there's a really broad toolkit out there. So have a look at it. I mean, I think the fund industry has really changed over the last decade, 15 years. And the global opportunity set now for investors is huge. There's a lot out there. But the question is, talk to your advisor, see what's available on the platform. Yeah, just focus on that appeal to industry just to make sure these things are classified in ways that are actually helpful to individuals, because um, I think we could do a better job there. So Hish, thank you so much for joining us this week on Investment Uncut. If listeners want to sort of follow up with you, find you, read your stuff that you're releasing, how do they do that? Everything we post is on our website. That's a great starting point, I think. And then you will see it on LinkedIn as well. But I would definitely recommend our LCP website as a first point for information. And Hish, have you got any recommendations for the listeners, be that podcast, book, series, what have you? I'll be honest, Dan, I'm just struggling with work and looking after a four-year-old in lockdown as it is. So, <laughs> so one thing I have seen, actually, and I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, if I'm being honest, but I found really interesting was, I don't know if you've heard of the documentary Macmillions on Sky. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it, actually. I've think, heard yeah. of it, but I haven't seen it. I think that's a good watch. It's just staggering how a small group of people were able to uh, get away with scamming McDonald's on the Monopoly Millions for something like 15 years. Wow. Now, I hadn't realised that. That was a theme at all. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at no. that. If it's the one TV programme you've chosen to watch, then I think it'll be, well, yeah, it's worth trying out. It's only five episodes. It didn't require a large commitment. <laughs> Those are the better. best ones, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Hish, finally, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? It might sound cheesy or repetitive, but I think diversification is key. Hard to argue with that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, that's all for today. Hish, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Thanks, Hish. Thanks. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please tune in again next week for another episode. See you then. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.